Is higher education broken? And if it is, how do we fix it? We're going to talk about that today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered, looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. Uh, we used to say this a lot in our intro, and I brought it back because there are dark things that are happening. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam and Education Post, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host. Host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, we are back again. How are you doing? Can't complain, man. Things are good out here in New York. Good time of year to be in New York City. It's my favorite time of year, weather-wise. I really like it. And I imagine New York, because you know I've given New York a hard time before, but there's certain times of it, the look of it, like Christmas there seems like it's just a thing. Yeah, New York and Christmas is amazing. I would say... I thought New York at Christmas was amazing, and then I, I spent a bit of last Christmas season in London, which that city does Christmas better than anywhere I've ever seen. The, the way they decorate their public spaces is unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, they really go all out. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm a huge Christmas guy. Like, it's my year. It's my time of year. It's my, the whole month. Uh, so like when you just mentioned London, you know, like the Christmas movies, there are some movies that are based in London during Christmas. It's, uh, it's like something I want to see one day. It's on my bucket list. It's a great Christmas city. Well, I can live vicariously through you as always traveling the world, seeing big things. I appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, let's jump right in. We have some listener mail and we love to, to hear from people who are listening to our show. You guys tend to give us good feedback. And by good, I don't mean that it's always like we're doing a great job. I just mean like it's good feedback for us to hear and for us to use in making the show better. So we had an email that came in from Dr. Deborah, who wrote to us about a show that we did a couple of shows back. And in it, I made the comment about black children being the new cotton, meaning that black children, black, black students are a commodity in public schools, and lots of people are earning their living off of keeping the bodies of black children into schools without filling their minds with everything that they need to succeed. Talked a little bit about how there's a whole middle class network of national people, including teachers and school staff and big pharma people and others who make their money off of black people, black children existing in the world, especially those with deficits. She said, uh, dear Mr. Stewart, as a white pediatrician, I tried listening to your podcast on why black children are the new cotton with an open mind. Clearly, we agree that racism has a huge negative impact on our children's education. We know that black children suffer more discipline than white children. We know that the expectations are lower for black children. However, I don't find that your position is helpful. Uh, many white and black educators, therapists, psychologists, and healthcare providers are working hard to change things for black children. To devalue our work as turning children into a commodity is highly insulting and dismissive. In addition, it's not accurate because just as much effort and money goes into behavioral modification for white children as well. This is not unique to black children. If you did an actual factual analysis, I'm sure you would find that even more money is spent into trying to fix white children simply because they are more numerous in American society. I agree that we have a huge problem with the inequity of social determinants of health, but your viewpoint does not contribute to changing that. Simply being provocative to get clicks may help you personally, but it does not improve the black community at large. Try harder. So, Robbie, you weren't on that show. So what do you think? Well, wait, why, why do I have to answer for you? <laughs> you go ahead, buddy. I, I, <laughs> I feel like you're an objective third party here, right? I don't remember the full context. My sense is in the healthcare context, I just did an interview last week with this woman named Bethany McLean who wrote a book about the U.S. healthcare system. And, you know, what, what the doctor is saying as it relates to the U.S. healthcare system is true in the sense that there's way more money to be had for treating, you know, people like assuming like the link between race and poverty in America, the affluent populations of this country are where the money is made in the healthcare system. And there's like a huge effort to avoid treating patients on Medicaid and patients who are uninsured and all of that. And so at least as it relates to the healthcare system, the dynamic is the opposite, like in the sense that like the money to be made 
the commodities are the people who are on private health insurance. And so at least as it relates to that, I agree with her. As it relates to schools, I don't know enough about the discipline data that she's talking about. And also, I don't, you need to answer for this. This is your, she was coming at you. I'm not answering for you on this. <laughs> well, this is what I'll say. Um, she says, many white and black educators, therapists, psychologists, and healthcare providers are working hard to change things for black children. Okay. But my point was that many black and white educators, therapists, psychologists, and healthcare providers have jobs because black children exist within the education system. And the education system is not doing much for black minds as they are for just keeping the bodies in the chairs. And I think I mentioned in that podcast, you know that this is true because when you try to give black bodies the ability to sit somewhere else in another system, the professionalized education establishment are the first ones to cry foul and want you to keep them there, even though their minds aren't being improved. That's kind of the point that I was making was we have 8 million black children in public schools and every time we try to give them an option when it's not working for them to go somewhere else, it's an entire middle class professional network nationally that works politically to stop that from happening, even as the black mind's not being improved in many of those classrooms. I realize, though, our life experiences are just different. And the way that we would look at this, I just are different. I'm actually a parent with multiple kids in schools, and I'm really worried about them getting everything that they need that I didn't get when I was their age in the schools. I felt very much processed. As a black student. Is she not a parent? I didn't, maybe I missed that part of her email. I don't know whether she's a parent or not, but she is talking about the black community as an outsider. Whenever I hear someone say, this is not unique to black children or to black people or whatever, when they all lives matter, something that is very clearly specific to black children in terms of empirical knowledge of what we know about how those kids exist within the system and how there are some things that are different for them that are different for other kids, then I know it's a good sign that maybe we just have different life experience on these things. Well, okay. I just want to say you're, you're inviting another email with your all lives matter comment. I'm just, I'm just warning you on that to the good doctor. I just want to say, send it to him, send it to him, not me. <laughs> yeah. Send it to me. I'll listen to it. Cause Ravi, Ravi doesn't want none of that smoke, but what I will say to you is thank you for listening and for taking the time to at least not just think it, but share your opinion on these things is we're all made better for it. And I can take, I can take some, some pushback and some ribbing. So it's cool. Let's go on to the next thing. Lightning round. I want to ask you about three things and see if you care, see if these are anything that you even care about. So Heckinger report says that professors say high school math doesn't prepare most students for their college majors and a survey humanities, arts, and social science professors say they really want their students to be able to analyze data, create charts and spreadsheets and reason mathematically skills that high school math courses often skip or rush through. I know you've talked about this before. What's your take on professors pushing back, saying that the, the math that kids are getting, even if it prepares them for STEM fields sometimes, is not preparing them for the work they need to do in college? I mean, I tend to agree with them. I think there's a big question, which we'll tackle later in this episode, which is whether college is preparing them for life, right? Now, if, the, if, if you assume that what the professors are doing is preparing kids for life, which is a big assumption, then I take seriously what they have to say. And there's ample evidence, and we've covered some of this before, that states have been watering down standards for math for some time now. And they're, they're using the cloak of what is practical and employable to actually just lower rigor. Uh, we went through that, I think, a bit when we talked about data science and California, like I actually think students should learn data science, but as certain people, I think like Noah Smith argued about California, they were teaching data awareness, not data science. And those are two very different things. And so I, I always worry about lowering rigor. So if the college professors are saying this, I take it seriously. Obviously we need to know more about whether those college classes are also, you know, aligned with what the, the workforce needs and what kids should know when they become adults. You know, I talked about this before, but it feels like our way of addressing these type of problems is too piecemeal. So if a nation wanted to raise its math proficiency, and if a nation wanted to use all of what we know about teaching math and how people learn math, wouldn't we act differently? <laughs> like, isn't that a different problem than state by state, district by district, you know, person by person? You know, what if America wanted just to be great at math? Wouldn't we handle problem like this differently? Yeah, I just, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I'm not a big like national education person. I just don't think our country, given how divided it is and how many 
promises our federal government has made that they don't deliver on. Like I wouldn't trust them to see through a cogent math curriculum uh, and the implementation of it. And I also know that just practically speaking, we tried, you know, with the Common Core, we have tried to, you know, nationalize a certain amount of curriculum and standards. There was some momentum around that that stuck, but then a lot of pushback that I think is durable. So I think any attempt by the federal government to set curriculum standards at this point would not be accepted by the majority of states. I tend to agree. I think that's a cultural problem. I don't think it's an education problem. And I definitely don't think it's a problem of an educated public. I think it's the the opposite. I think it's a problem of an uneducated public actually being vulnerable to really dumb campaigns. Uh, fact of the matter with Common Core, it was just a good idea. Most leading countries in the world have some sort of nationalized standards for what their kids should be learning. And it's because they know that it's in their best interest as a nation and for national security to have some sort of quality control. And I don't think that they live on, Americans love to say how bad government is. Anti-government is way worse than government. I just want to be very clear. Like the stuff that we're doing like with random things from state to state is far worse than actually what government could do if we were Shanghai or Japan or Hong Kong, for instance. We just wouldn't have that as a problem. Even Finland, everybody's favorite place, you know, doesn't have that problem of being able to say, no, we're one nation. As a nation, we should lift ourselves up. But I'm going to move on to the second one. Well, can I at least say something about that? You know, two of those places you mentioned, you know, Hong Kong, for example, is the opposite. I have the opposite impression of Hong Kong. Actually, the quote unquote federalism of Hong Kong, if we want to even call it that, which was that it was separate and walled off from mainland Chinese policy for as long as it was, was a good thing. And I actually think that incorporating it into the larger Chinese project has devastated that place, both in terms of the freedoms offered, but also the business environment. And I could only imagine that's affected its education system. You know, now it's in a, you know, an education system run by an authoritarian government that also has very, very reactionary policies against ethnic minorities within his country and foreigners. So I can't imagine that incorporating Hong Kong into the the mainland Chinese project is a good thing. Could just be misremembering. I thought there was something in like Amanda Ripley's book, The Smartest Kids in the World, that looked at them as one of the test cases. For, I thought it was South Korea. Was it South Korea? Yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking like the examples that she was lifting up were my takeaway from it was were places where they kind of got serious as a nation about getting all their kids moving forward. But I agree with you. It hasn't really worked out very well for us to, to think that way. So let's move on to the second thing, lightly around, see if you really care about this more political. Vanity Fair has an article about Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, in October said America was going to hell because 25% of high school students identify as something other than straight. Uh, the report said that three weeks before becoming House Speaker, Mike Johnson said American society was so dark and depraved, it almost seems irredeemable, citing statistics about high school students' sexuality. Is this disqualifying politically? Is this the type of discourse that we should expect from our leaders? And how does this actually train attention on high schools and school and, you know, make us smarter about education? Yeah, I mean, it should be disqualifying. It won't be, unfortunately. It obviously hasn't been, but it should be. And I think, you know, this question I have is just, why would you want to lead this country if, if you hold it in such low regard? I want my leaders to believe in this country. Call me old fashioned. And the people of the country. Like believing in yeah. the country is literally believing in the people, not just the country right. in some abstract form. And it seems like the Mike Johnsons of the world actually, they really do love the country more than they like the people <laughs> of the country. Yeah. Or they, they love they love the idea of loving the country is kind of how I think about Ooh. it. They love they love to look in the mirror and say, I'm a patriot. But you know, I'm not I don't see a ton of evidence that they're doing things that patriots would do. Right. A patriot would yeah. be a patriot would be loving and respectful of significant portions of the population who think differently than you and who may make you uncomfortable for whatever reason, Mike Johnson or you know, whatever. You would love this country's first amendment. You would love the separation of church and state, right? You would love the things about this country that make it this country. But he 
doesn't appear to love those things about this country. He seems to be ignoring them. The one thing that this points out for me that I think is going to be our problem next year is that for everybody that wants to talk about real education, like how children are educated and what we can do to be a smarter country and have more people that are capable and ready for like the lives that they're going to lead, has nothing to do with the majority of the things that are going to be bantered between political parties next year. And that is a huge loss for all of us. It's mostly a loss for our kids that need us to be putting our smartest people on our weakest systems that train kids up. But it's going to be such a noise, just a noisy kind of environment next year with all the wrong things about education. Anyways, so the last thing here, Lightning Round, Education Week is reporting on a 2023 state of play report by the Aspen Institute reveals the high cost of limiting youth sports participation, especially among low-income families. Public schools are key to to providing more equitable access to sports, which is vital for physical and social development. Despite challenges with limited facilities and coaching resources, schools are increasingly investing in sports programs. Creating solutions and community-based partnerships are helping to overcome these hurdles, fostering physical and mental well-being in students while enhancing community engagement. The reason I bring this up is I used to poo-poo the whole idea that kids need more recess and they need more play. And, you know, what I thought is they need more math and they just need to be more learning or whatnot. Or how taken in are you by, like, arguments about things that are like electives about out-of-school time stuff or things like sports and all that stuff? in terms of being a contributor to better education performance. Yeah, I I come from the same school of thought as you, which is I've always had a certain reaction to this framing of recess and play and all that. And and I would say that if it's being framed as as a either or, I'm often uncomfortable with that. Now, sometimes you have to make trade-offs with time, without a doubt. But I often think that it's usually simplistically offered by certain school board members, like this woman in Nashville who's a school board member that I won't name her, but you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, I do. She would use the recess as an argument against the extra reading and math that we'd give students who were behind in those subjects. And my sense is uh, you should have both, which is why we had extended school days with parents, loved by the way. And if we are putting more resources in school to keep them open later and maybe opening them earlier, having staggered staff starts, right, that would be a good investment of public resources. So they almost double as after-school programs, which, you know, get cut in a lot of bad budget environments, then you can fit in a lot. You could fit in that tutoring, you could fit in more recess, you could fit in more sports. Now, I know this is a, you know, pie in the sky, like we should throw more resources at it, but I just think that's a good use of resources. And I also think that I personally, like, take seriously more than ever the need to keep kids active and give them opportunities to be outside and away from their phones. And, you know, hopefully you are not, the kids don't have their phones during these activities. I think it's really important, in, especially in an age where kids go home and they, they lock themselves up with a device usually more than we would ever recognize in our childhoods. It's more necessary than ever. So I, I'm for it. I'm for expanding those offerings, protecting those offerings. I would say though, it, it's important to make them like the sports accessible early on because I, I there's like a specialization now where it's like the AAU basketballization of, of youth sports where they're getting more and more specialized, more and more elite, more and more traveling teams that are really expensive and all that, which usually operate outside of the public system. But like the kids, I think kids should have opportunities to experiment with new sports and have fun playing sports without it being like super hyper competitive all the time pretty late into their existence. Yeah, I actually um, used to be very hardcore about everything needing to be about academics until we get that right. Until we get the academics right, like, you know, a lot of this stuff seems superfluous. Don't think that anymore. And I'm just watching with my own kids, three different kids in school, all participating in something, one in dance, one in football, one in basketball, lacrosse. And what I have noticed is there is a social system that starts because of that. There is a um, wanting to be better because you have peer groups who are consistently pushing themselves in some way. And that isn't that's infectious for you. You know, you want to do better and do more than you would if you're just by yourself. It's also something to do. I mean, like like for a lot of kids, they don't have the luxury of being able to stay behind after school, the luxury of not having to go straight home and have to do something else. Or it, it just it requires resources, but the resources are well spent in the terms of socialization, the, the terms of, you know, so we have an obesity problem. 
So like if I can get my kids out of the house to go do something where they have to be active for a long period of time and they're enjoying it because they're playing a game, they're not like just working out. Amazing. I just think there's a benefit to it. And I wish it was what this study is talking about is how this impacts low income kids. I wish it was more fair and more accessible. I just want to be very clear. Football is very expensive. Lacrosse is even more expensive. Hockey is super expensive. Even if you're going through a public system, the costs are still there, right? Like even within public schools. And man, uh, dance, don't even get me started on what that whole thing is about. You'll know one day, Robbie. Yeah. Well, you know, football, football is such an interesting conundrum because it is very expensive. It also is obviously terrible for the brain. At the same time, and it's also, you know, exclusive to males in most places. So you put all that together, that's tough. Flag football is becoming more, I played football, uh, which is probably why I'm brain damaged till this day. Uh, so anything I say wrong here, is probably, I, I blame on that. But there's a growth of flag football, which I think captures a lot of the benefits of football. It's cheaper also. And either way, I think what I like about football, though, is it is it is an intense team environment like almost none other like the size of your team like the teams are huge They're, it's a very complicated game it involves like a differentiation in a certain way it's a certain amount of toughness that's required both mentally and physically to make it through training camps i think that's really good for kids so if there's a way to to replicate that or preserve that aspect of it without inflicting so much mental trauma on kids and I mean the literal trauma. I don't mean like mm-hmm, the, the fact mm-hmm. that it's hard. I mean literally like the the CTE. I think that would be a good thing, you know. And there are like female flag football leagues are actually becoming more and more popular too. And I love that. So a couple of things just about this, and then we'll move on. First of all, there's a girl on my son's football team this year, all year. And the, the funniest thing to me about how that just wasn't an issue. It wasn't like, uh, you know, as we're talking nationally about uh, transgenderism and all this type of stuff, we had a whole girl on the football team and uh, just saw went to their banquet last night, the football banquet, and they had a highlight reel. And just was interesting when that particular player came up, there just was nothing about it. Like, I just thought to myself, isn't this interesting? We have a girl on the team, whole girl on the team, and it's not even a thing. But the thing about the, the head trauma, five of my son's friends, at least five head injuries this year. A couple of them had multiple injuries and they had to sit out multiple games and they were like painful injuries injuries in some way. But the head thing, Ravi, you'll be impressed by this. The helmets that they have, they had some business person who invested in them having like these $2,000 helmets or something. Oh, the big egg helmets, the ones that look crazy? No, these look sharp as hell. These look like oh, professional. Really? Oh, oh my okay. God. Yeah, these look like... These look like the Vikings should be wearing them, the Minnesota Vikings. And it's just funny, not every district has those. Oh, yeah. So when we were playing other districts, I could see the difference in the helmets would cause issue. All right. Well, listen, today's show, the meat of the show is about higher education. And I feel like we haven't done this just as we've talked a little bit here and there about, I think, maybe now and then about free college or, you know, um, issues about higher ed that aren't significantly about the model of it and if we're getting it right. So today we want to talk a little bit about higher education and whether or not we are on the right track. Is it broken? And if it is, are we fixing it? Uh, The current state of higher education in the United States is under a lot of scrutiny due to various challenges, including the increasing student debt, which we hear about all the time, declining enrollment, faculty layoffs, the high cost of maintaining educational institutions, and more. The root causes are identified as soaring operational expenses, which tells us a lot about the business model, uh, reduced government support. And I don't know how that how true that is everywhere, but I think in like West Virginia, there was a, you know, there's less investment than there is in Minnesota, that's for sure. And escalating tuition fees. And Ravi, I'll need you to explain to me why the hell are they so expensive? Like, for instance, if I, you want to go to school in-state here in Minnesota, but you want to go one state over to Iowa or whatnot, the cost just like seems to triple, you know, something crazy. So we need um, we need to talk about that. The Lower Cost Models Consortium offers a collaborative approach. This is a group that is thinking about these things to address these issues by sharing resources among liberal arts colleges and creating affordable hybrid degree programs. Some of this might be the wave of the future, but you're a good business thinking guy. What do you think if we were to talk about the problem? First of all, how big is it? Am I overstating it? And two, are we just missing 
opportunities and solutions to fix higher education for more people in the United States. I do think the problem is huge. And I think it it looks a little different where depending on where we focus our gaze, right? Like the problem of the elite institutions is slightly different than I would say the problem of the middle tier and then it's different than the community college problems. And I think, you know, starting with the elite institutions, the problem is one of scarcity and lack of accountability, right? So there the scarcity is like these are these are very hot commodities. They're luxury items that largely go to people who have very high income, who are competing with with a very small amount of seats that, you know, if it were any other product market, high demand with people with lots of resources, they would continue to expand the offerings. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Harvard would have, you know, 10,000 kids, 100,000 kids in their entering class, just like there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Tesla's in circulation around the country, like whenever there's like a lot of people, you know, who want a luxury good, you know, or any good really, if it were truly the private sector, we would expand that, but we don't. I think the problem of accountability is that, and and the reason why they don't is they want to keep it a private club that's really exclusive. The exclusivity is part of what they love about it. I think the lack of accountability is the fact that these are institutions that benefit from the taxpayers in a number of ways. One is through government subsidized student loans, and two is through tax exempt status. And I don't think the federal government has asked enough of these institutions for the cover of nonprofit status and subsidized education that we give people. So yeah, that that's on the elite side. I'll just pause there. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's probably right about the elite side of things. And I think that takes a lot of the oxygen out of the room when we're talking about higher ed overall. Because, I mean, you know, you get 50,000 applications for 5,000 seats at Harvard and something similar amongst the other big ones. But when I think about it as three kids coming up, you know, through the regular system, what's the pathway from K-12 to either community college and state colleges. Like that's the normal articulation route, the route of articulation. That's a pathway. And why is there so much brokenness between, for instance, high school and and community college and community college and and four-year college, right? Like it feels like there's a couple of off-ramps, a couple of places where the system just loses a bunch of people, just breaks down. And all of that is based on cost because each of those off-ramps, as I'm calling it, is a decision place. And you have to make a decision. And the decision really is about how much money you're willing to invest for how interested you are in studying a thing. Now, imagine if we had that same problem, say, for instance, in eighth grade, like K to 12, all of a sudden in eighth grade, you had to make a decision about the next pathway and you had to start paying money uh, for eighth grade. I think we'd start losing some people, right? Because it just doesn't make any sense. There's a national value to getting more people down to 16, 1 to 16, K to 16, right? Like we would all do better (laughs) if we had a country that at least got you not even to 16, let's just say 15 or 14 or whatever, something beyond 12 years. So before we get to privates, I mean, I just wonder about the public systems. Why are they so weirdly uneven? I mean, K-12 in every state is is different, but somewhat similar. But the college part of it, like, you know, if you wanted to go to the U of M, the University of Minnesota, or you wanted to go to the University of Michigan, whatever, the games and the rules are just, and the cost base is just so weird. It's all over the map. And I don't get it. Yeah, I, I think it's tough because I, I sit here in New York and I went to State University of New York at Binghamton. And it, it, it has been one of the most highly regarded state university systems in the country. Obama shouted it out. You know, we've talked previously about Obama's effort to rate universities in terms of their ability to keep tuition low and get people employed, which I thought was a very sensible proposal that was opposed by the colleges and universities, which one should ask why the colleges and universities would be threatened by that. But I went to, and SUNY has gotten a little bit more expensive, but when I went there, it was extremely cheap. It was a few thousand dollars a year. Wait, wait, let's stop. How much was it? I think it was three. I don't remember three or four thousand. Wow. I mean, I, I could be wrong about that. That's not including board, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. that was um, it. Was very cheap, and I was a, and I I got away with no debt in college because I was an RA, and then they gave me a scholarship, and I, I barely got in, but they recognized me halfway through, gave me a scholarship, and I was a resident advisor, which means I didn't pay room and board, and that to me is like more schools like that exist. It puts it, it helps the rest of the system, right? Like. It helps put pressure on 
the Boston colleges and the Boston universities who may be technically ranked higher than Binghamton last time I checked, but they're close enough that if you're sitting there and your parents and your kids and you're looking and you're like, Hey, that school, if we go to Binghamton, then you're going to have no debt or you're going to very low debt. If you go to Boston university, you're going to leave with $250,000, $300,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm. Now the community, like why it's uneven, I think is a, is a reflection of number one, like the different state legislatures and how they prioritize it. Two is I think sometimes these universities are operating as quasi private institutions and they have huge, they have their own endowments on top of the, public system and that they're, they're also doing, and and Binghamton started to do this when I was leaving is like, they would, they start to chase after the shiny, like rock climbing gym type of stuff and fancy dormitories. And they, they get laden with debt and things like that. And then they start to have to increase tuition as well. They want to compete on like the, the big research center stuff, which obviously some public universities do that really well, but I, I think like schools should pick and choose what they're really good at. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I don't really have a good, an easy answer for the, the differences. I mean, I think part of it is that we've considered higher education to be like a treat, not like a, a core part of your educational process for every citizen in the United States. It's like a cherry on top of a Sunday. Sunday's free. The cherry costs you a whole bunch of money. But I mean, so, so we looked at a couple articles as we were thinking about this show. There's one in Bloomberg from April of this year called America's Educational Superpower is Fading. Here's the setup of it. Despite being a global leader in higher education, the U.S. university system is facing significant challenges. The system is marked by rising cost, administrative bloat, and a surge in federal student debt reaching $1.6 trillion. Uh, enrollment has declined. Now, this is where it gets into Scott, uh, Professor Scott Galloway territory. Um, enrollment has declined by 1.4 million since the pandemic began, and skepticism about the value of a college degree is growing. So, here's what this article calls for in terms of a fix democratization, marketization, meritocracy, and freedom of speech. And those things feel so kind of like, you know, abstract and whatever. I don't even know what all that means in terms of like $1.6 trillion in debt for students and them reconsidering whether it's even valuable. To me, that's a hard problem. Talking about democratization and marketization and meritocracy and free speech, freedom of speech, feels like something that people who've already been to college and feel good about themselves talk about because it doesn't make sense. The thing I said about Galloway, is he is talking a lot about increasingly number of unmarriable men that is is growing fastly, quickly. Men not going to college, being outpaced by women going to college. Not, listen, don't come at me with any type of sexism stuff. I'm just saying it's an unbalance of things that is, there's a price to pay for more dropouts of, of the traditional pathways to higher education. There's a, there's a price to be paid for that over time. It's not just the $1.6 trillion in student debt that's causing people to, to reconsider. It's also what happens when we have fewer people going to college because they've just decided it's, it's not a good thing. So don't you think instead of fixing like things like you know democratization, I don't even know what that means, and meritocracy and all these other things, that we should just fix the business model and we should just fix like the incentive to go? Yeah. I would need to know more about what they mean by those those terms, but I do think the business model needs to be fixed, and I think it will be fixed. I, I do think that like there are certain professions where you can't help but get a college degree, right, if you want to be a doctor, but then there are a lot of professions where you can get away with not having one, and I think there should be more, by the way, where you don't need a college degree, but the more that that's possible, you're going to start to see more bespoke models, you know, more hybrid models that, you know are cheaper because they don't necessarily rely on people showing up to like fancy buildings and with like tons of research faculty, right? Like there's, there was a startup I just saw this week that's offering, you know, tons of different college courses bespoke by college professors at elite universities like Oxford that you just pay for one class at a time and you get the credentials, you take the exams and all of that. And, you know, obviously Coursera and others have been doing this for a while. And I'm currently enrolled in a course at Vanderbilt University on prompt engineering for artificial intelligence at Vanderbilt. Like the more that that stuff exists and and the more that professions change rapidly in response to things like AI faster than universities could adapt anyway, where like, you know, you're going to find the one course that's offered on this cutting edge thing and most universities probably aren't going to get there. I do think the business models will change. 
I do think, though, that there still needs to be a solution for the majors that we need as a country, right? Like, we need nurses, we need doctors, we need teachers, we need engineers, we need a lot of different professions that you, you definitely need to go to college for those things. So I believe that you're right that there's going to be new models that come out. There was a model years ago from Patton University that guaranteed you could graduate debt-free. And basically what it did, it was a bulking model, meaning you could take as many classes as you could take. Like it, it was, you, you know, in a semester, if you wanted to take 10 or if you wanted to take five or six or whatever, and it was one flat fee. Per semester. So it was like, I think I want to say it was like $300 a month or something like that. It worked out to be, and you could take as much, you know, could get done as fast as you want. I think there will be more of that. How does that affect like our state systems, like, you know, atomizing education? There will always be a need for an alternative market of things, but will there always be a need for a normal K-12 pathway, a normal, you know, four-year pathway in a system that is shared and collectively, you know, maintained for the people that don't fall into some, some form of like special alternative, some alternative system of things? And do you care about these couple of things? There's some social factors. It's a big number of people that meet their spouse in college. Family formation for people that are educated is the amongst the strongest family formation in the country. Is there an issue with like, I just kind of was going there a second ago. I'm trying to get you to be sexist here, Robbie. Like if all the women are going to the major colleges and you have larger and larger numbers of groups of men that are just not achieving in that way and not going there. Professor Galloway, I, I just want to keep mentioning him. He sees this as a very big problem because it's going to cause social issues. It already is causing social issues. And he attributes it, I think, a lot to the model, the business model of higher ed not being very friendly to, to more men that are now starting to see it as not even really a good option. It's actually not a good you know, business system for them to, to pursue. Maybe I'm making too much of that, but there's some other social factors that come along with college. So I wouldn't say the gender differences are at the top of my list of concerns for colleges. I'd have to spend a little bit more time thinking about that. But I do think the hurricane is coming for colleges. When I talked to Todd Rose over at Populous, he did this study on the American dream. And he found that most Americans think that other people really value four-year degrees and advanced degrees. So he does the difference between what people think other people think versus what they actually think. And he found that having a four-year bachelor degree was ranked 54th amongst possible parts of the American dream by people actually, but they think other people rank it 15th. And advanced degree was 52 versus four, which for some people might be listening to this, might not understand what that all means. It was the biggest difference in any study he has ever done in terms of the difference between the perception of how people value something versus how they personally value. So the you know translation is people don't actually think college is as valuable as it's being assumed. And the assumption is feeding this sort of sense of keeping up with the Joneses, right? And I, and I think that this is, and, and this data is getting worse every year. Like even if you look at traditional polling data, I do think a day of reckoning is is already here for the colleges. I think it's, it's, it's already, we're already in the midst of it. People are trying to find as many alternative pathways from college as possible. And I think it over overlaps with influencer culture where a lot of kids and I don't think this is a good thing, but I think a lot of kids are like, I can just go it alone and be my own brand. And I don't need the brand of, you know, NYU or, you know, Stony Brook University. I, I am my own brand. And some very lucky few will do really well with that. And a whole bunch of other people will be in their parents' basements in 10 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's a piece from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, notably, while strong labor market has boosted the wages of those with a high school diploma in recent years, the wages of college graduates have gone up by as much or more, keeping the college wage premium near an all-time high. Indeed, the labor market for college graduates has not been this strong since well before the Great Recession. Because of the economic benefits of a college degree last over an entire career, we estimate that this wage premium over a more than 40-year work life uh, using an index explained in detail by our 2014 study, this yields estimate of the total benefit of a college degree that can be weighed against the cost. And they're saying that that's a lot, like the the premium for going to college. I think if you're among college-educated people, you dismiss how important it is to to your world that you live in and your success until you try and live without one. Until you like, you know, oh, there's so many more jobs now that don't require a college degree. Really? 
Really? Well, give me your college degree, take it off your resume and start applying for jobs right now. There's like 15 jobs that philanthropies have sent me in the last week. These are philanthropies who are putting out reports saying that college degrees aren't worth all of that, that we think that they are. And then if you look at their job descriptions, they're not even calling just for uh, four-year degrees in some cases. They're saying, but we would actually prefer you have a master's degree in anything, right? Same, same foundation, publishing a paper on one side saying that it's not that important as it used to be. And on the on the other side, they don't have a single employee in their place that is without a college degree. I always wonder about these job descriptions. I, I've, I've tended to start pulling things off of job descriptions because I think people just are like very copy paste on this. So like, oh mm-hmm, yeah, boy. Mm-hmm. like any advanced degree, like why even put that on there? Like what, what could possibly you be like selecting for? Because it's a rubber stamp and a way of saying if you've, if you've completed a master's degree, in almost anything, it should mean that you're capable of X or you're at a level of X. I have serious questions about but that. But you know it's prevalent. You know that like the people who are the least kind of dismissive about the power of a college degree are those without one. Those who are applying for jobs and looking for wages and looking for work and trying to get advanced in their career, in their companies, and trying to get raises and benefits. Those are the people to talk to when you start asking about whether or not there's any real utility to a college degree. And by the way, it doesn't make it easier, you know, for that group when it doesn't look like it's a fair system of being able to get a college degree. So I, I do think that college degrees are really important. And I agree that they're, they're, they're no less important today than they were before. I do think though that, you know, whether it's the populist data or polling data pretty consistently shows that low income people too have become more skeptical of college degrees today than they have been in the past. And I don't blame them because the cost is so enormous. Like, you know, it's hard to parse through the data, but the way that higher education has outpaced inflation is unprecedented. The only thing that's even in its vicinity is healthcare costs. And so when people look at that and say, man, like when housing is getting more expensive, healthcare is getting more expensive and college is getting more expensive, I just, if I could find an alternative to doing it, I'll take that. Like I sympathize with that person. I, not only do I sympathize with that person, I have many students who have made that decision and I've tried to talk them into going the four year out, but it's hard to, it's hard to, to give somebody advice when you're not in their bank account, you're not in their shoes. You know, you don't know what their economic realities are. And, And for my students, so many of them had short-term economic needs that I didn't have answers for. You know, I, I just didn't have answer for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm so I'm just so old school in this. First of all, I'm somebody that got my college education later in life, so I did my time as a person in the general work market uh, without a college degree. And there's a before and after effect in my mind in some <laughs> of that education stuff and the premium, the status, the access to things like the, just the access to life things that we take for granted just was way different when you were considered to be on one side of that fence or the other. The premium for BAs right now stands at 90% and the premium for an AA degree is 19%. That's a big swing. It's a big difference, but especially for black women or certain subgroups, just an AA actually does so much over a, laf- a lifetime in your terms of attainment, like your your jobs, your income, your money, and uh, the building of intergenerational wealth. And then there's also, I think there's a reason why the wealthy like to laugh about these things and talk about them and buy all the books and all the, the and buy all the stuff that tells us it's not as important. And at the same time, they are demanding that their kids actually complete it. It's just a box you check no matter what, like in their families. And I don't think that they would mind that it's it's not accessible to everybody because, you know, the way that you maintain a hierarchy and an elite is to make sure that some of the roads to the elite actually are not available to everybody. So I would love to just see us have a super fair, affordable college education system uh, and then see what happens. Right. Like, you know, uh, I was reading something a couple of days ago about a certain political party in the United States that's pushing this issue of not everybody should participate in all aspects of society. They're literally having this in the writing of their party platform and that there should be some roads to the elite that not everybody are accessible to because not everybody is capable of being a Mozart. Not everybody is capable of being a Beethoven. Not everybody is capable of being a Galileo. 
At the same time, without fair systems, you don't know how many people in low-income areas are on Galileo, and you just don't know it because there's not a way to get them, you know, in the path. So I don't know what the answer here is. I think, you know, would you agree that this is true? Most people think that there's something wrong or broken about higher ed, even if they disagree with what that is. And that they're probably, I think you just had a, you had a good saying for it in this discussion. I forgot what it was, but there'll be a reckoning. Like it's going to happen. There's going to be a need to figure out what the next step is. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think everybody... I think even the people in higher ed know there's a problem. And I think the question is, are people going to have the courage to do anything about it? Or are we in the reckoning now and there's just changes happening that are accumulating over time? And, you know, 10 years from now, it'll be obvious that things are dramatically different. I, I really don't know. Yeah, our super producer um, dropped us a note here saying that your college in 2021, the in-state tuition was 10390 and out-of-state tuition was 26420 That's exactly my, and, and that's with fees. That's exactly kind of my point, actually, though, is like, it's almost double if you want to come from out-of-state and what that is, it's an incentive for states to want to have more out-of-state students and deny seats to in-state students because it's more money. Well, I have no problem with cheaper tuition for in-state people because, you know, people pay taxes and all that. And it's kind of makes sense. I think, I think if you have a very limited amount of out-of-state seats and you use that to subsidize certain programs or whatever or create some kind of geographic diversity because you feel like that's in the interest of your school, fine. Uh, I have no problem with it. If you start pushing out the low tuition in-staters to make more room for the out-of-staters, then I think we have a problem. In my state, we have what we call the Minnesota State Promise, which it creates a tuition-free pathway to higher education for eligible Minnesota residents at 26 state colleges. Here are the criteria. You, know, you must be a resident in the United States, and it sounds like you just said you're okay with that. Have a family-adjusted gross income as reported on the free application of below 80K. Is that a good cutoff to you for like free college, 80K? I think college should be free for everybody. Thank you. All right. This is, <laughs> this is where we were getting to, and I appreciate that because 80K still feels to me like, yeah, that seems like you're doing pretty well if you're making 80K, I guess, in your family. But Well, maybe I, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me revise that for a second. I think college should be free for everybody for certain majors. I wouldn't do all the majors, but I would do certain majors. Mm, that's interesting. More like teachers, police officers, what? Yeah. Nurses. Yeah, I mean, definitely the medical professions, the sciences, teachers, nurses. Yeah, I mean, we can go down the list. We, we've done a little bit of this t discussion before, and I know this. we're coming to an end of this episode. I don't want to say too much more, but I've written it somewhere, whatever I think those professions should be. But I, I, I think that we should really incentivize people to do the jobs that are extremely scarce and needed in society right now. All right. So one last one and see what you think about this. One of the things we've talked so much about the business part of education being broken, of higher ed being broken. One of the things that is being pointed out that is breaking or is broken about the university system is a lack of viewpoint diversity and colleges are being attacked and saddled with the idea that they are one-sided ideologically, uh, mostly being towards the left and is causing problems with free speech and others. There's one plan that is coming up where professors are pushing back on this viewpoint neutral push, push to make everything viewpoint neutral. This is mostly becoming an issue around the Palestinian Israeli issues that are coming up. But you've interviewed people where you know that like college professors have been saying that there's an alarming lack of viewpoint diversity in colleges. How much of this is the brokenness? How much of that part do you chalk that up as this is part of higher ed breaking and being broken? I think like higher ed has always been more like has tilted liberal, but I think certain people tracking this, I think like people like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education have been tracking it, getting more and more polarized. And I, I think the last fire survey that came out had 50% of professors identifying as liberal, 17% as moderate, and 26% as conservative. That feels off, just mm -hmm. honestly. Like mm -hmm. it, it just feels tilted. And, and I, I don't think college faculty should reflect society perfectly. But I do think it's hard to be anything but extremely liberal on a college faculty. I think that's without a doubt. And it was like that when I was there, and that was a long time ago. 
So I can only imagine what it's like now. That does seem wrong. I wonder, like, scientifically speaking, the more educated you become, the more generous and liberal and less faith-based and metaphysical you become, right? So conservatism lends itself to faith basis, to metaphysical space laser beams starting California wildflower fires and stuff like that. Um, so, the, you know, it's just scientifically proven the more educated you become, the more kind of progressive or liberal, whatever you want to call it, you become. And I don't know if that's a thing because of indoctrination or ideology or just a function of becoming more like learned, which would mean that, of course, education would have more people that are more educated because they're in education. And two, just by science, we know that the more educated you become, the more progressive you become. Doesn't mean that you're unable to teach conservative things or about conservative things, right? Yeah, I do. I do think like I, I, I do think it was helpful that they used the word conservative, not necessarily political parties, because I I do think that like the dialectic and hopefully something a little bit more diverse than that between conservatives and liberals makes them both better. I also think that the inclusion of moderates in that data, I think, would challenge the argument that this is like, oh, well, if you don't believe in global warming or you you have a certain view on creation or you your view on the income taxes or whatever, like that like somehow the liberal position is more true than the moderate position. I would I would have to really somebody would have to do a lot of work to convince me that there's like some objective high ground that liberals have versus a moderate versus a conservative. I think the moderate actually would be considered liberal by the conservative. What you're calling a moderate would still be considered like a liberal or progressive by the conservative. The person you're calling a moderate, like for instance, there's someone in a college class right now sitting there arguing with the professor because they heard something or they read something. And it's getting very frustrating for that particular professor who's like, that's good. We have like lots of research that doesn't give us a definitive answer, but gives us a better answer than the one you're. But the same could be said of the the moderate to the liberal. I know because I'm somebody who has sometimes characterized myself as a moderate and lots of liberals call me conservative. And that is true of almost every moderate I know. And it's actually literally true in New York City, where if you put moderate on a dating app, Ricky uh, Michael has talked about this a lot, <laughs> it is automatically assumed that you're yeah. a Republican. So I do think that goes both ways. I think that's funny. Well, I'll say this in, at the end of our program here. Um, as somebody who went to both Liberty University and Goddard University, which is simultaneously- Wait a minute, you went to most, Liberty? Yes, I went to Liberty and to Goddard University. And um, as somebody who can say what it's like to have been in the extreme uh, right and left of colleges, and by extreme, I mean, literally, Goddard is the most progressive university in the United States, probably in the world. And uh, Liberty is amongst probably the most conservative. I do think that there's a difference in the basis in how they feel about evidence and about science and about those things. But anyways, I appreciate this discussion. I thought it was time for us to go a little bit deeper on higher ed because it comes up in small discussions. It's a big problem. I think we should fix it for more students. And I think the first part of that is making it affordable. There should not be $1.6 trillion in education expenses that are preventing young people from getting on with their lives when, in fact, the United States can use every educated person it can get. Like we, we don't really have like a future vested in ignorance. So all that we can do to invest in a smarter country would be great for us. So thank you as always, Robbie, for a riveting conversation. Appreciate it. And to our listeners, we appreciate you listening. As always, this has been another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. We'll talk to you again next week. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 